In India, they say that the Western religions have gotten it all backward because they're based on this idea of original sin. And in India, they say there's no such thing as that. There is, however, original jouissance, original enjoyment. But it's not man's enjoyment, it's God's. And they say in the most ancient writings, the Puranas, that predate even the Vedas, that the original vice, the original icha, or desire, that God had that is responsible for all the trouble that we deal with is that God is a gambler. Shiva loves to gamble. And there's a problem that, of course, God has in his love for gambling, which is that because he knows the future in advance, nothing is a gamble for him. And so that's why gambling is so important to God. It's the only thing he can't do. And of course, if you're omnipotent, you don't want to believe there's nothing you can do. So the only way that God could satisfy his gambling impulse was to create a universe that was himself, but in which he would forget everything that he knew as God, and that he would divide himself into both male and female, which made the world a total gamble, as you know. <laughs> and not only that, but he would put some aspects of himself that were male into female bodies and some that were female into male bodies, which made the gamble even more extreme. And so every relationship became a gamble, every event, every project. And because a gambler loves surprise, God had to build in absolute surprising, unsuspected consequences to every action that would take place. so that the very intelligence of God would be stymied by these unknowable, unforeseen consequences of every action. And that everyone would therefore always be in a state of suspense. Now, in the old Puranas, the Shiv Purana in particular, God is always depicted as uh, enjoying a dice game. He would play dice with Parvati, and Parvati always wins. <laughs> Until the very end, of course. And then they put the, the whole planet Earth up uh, as the stakes of the game, and uh, Shiva finally wins it and brings back uh, a kingdom of heaven, and so he can start all over again and lose it all until the world becomes a hell realm in which God has to somehow save the situation in, by some 
miraculously impossible throw of the dice. So they say that's the reason why the situation in the world has to be what it is. It has to look like goodness is losing and that it's impossible for there to be justice, happiness, goodness, peace, conflict-free relationships in the world. And it's only when Shiva is able to awaken from the trance that he has put himself in and suddenly realizes his own nature as God that he starts to win again. And that's why the deepest yearning and attribute of every human being and really every being who contains a, a significant amount of that consciousness that pertains to Shiva is the trait of being a detective. What everyone wants to do is to connect the dots. That's all the mind is ever attempting to do, connect the dots. Try to find out what's really happening. Try to get to the root of things. What's the deepest pattern that can connect all of this, can make sense of all of this? But the only way that that pattern that connects us all can be realized is through the recognition of the true nature of our consciousness, not as either male or female or human or any other variety that appears within the plane of the phenomenal world. But what has to happen is that the consciousness reaches the realization that it is completely absent as a phenomenal being. That when you meditate in a deep enough way, you realize you are not here. There is no I, there is no self. Once the mind becomes quiet, there's an inner void, an emptiness. A presence, but a presence that is an absence. And the tipping point in the meditative process is that acceptance of absence. There is no ego. The ego is simply an object that appears in the mind, a complex object, but an artifact that we can disidentify with. And once there has been a disidentification with that object, and that object being a computer program has algorithms, has rules, has determinations, so that every thought, every impulse, every affect, every action is predetermined. The ego has no free will. And thus it will repeat over and over again the same patterns of self-sabotage, of self-defeat, of loss, of stupidity at the moment when one feels most intelligent. <clears throat> and all of culture really is based 
on that. It's either the tragedy of the stupidity of one's inability to conquer one's own ego, or the comic effect of laughing at our own stupidity in some lucid moments of intelligence. But all of culture is about the gamble we have with our own minds. When we are in the ego mind, we are going to lose. When we retreat from the ego mind, withdraw from it, and become indeterminate to ourselves, absent from the ego, then a power moves within us that is accurate, that is perfect, that is in sync with everything that is happening, and that knows how to live. And the gamble is one. But the paradox is that this self that knows is what in the West we would call acephalic. It's not a thinking self. It's not a conscious self. It's simply a spontaneous will. And thus, in, in the Shiva Puranas, they divide this into Icha, Jnana, and Kriya. Icha is the will itself, the will of God that is not thought out. It's not premeditated but it contains a desire for absolute goodness that is a win-win because Shiva knows that he, she is present as all beings. There is no other. And therefore the action has to be such that everyone benefits. The winning of the gamble is the ultimate benevolent outcome that results in everyone winning. There don't need to be any losers. But the ego loses that understanding and turns the world into a zero-sum game, where in order to win, someone has to lose. But as soon as that world situation becomes conceived within the frame of reference of a zero-sum game, then everyone loses. And it is the return to the consciousness of Shiva that emerges as an absence, which is a freedom from ego, a freedom from identity, a moment of depersonalization in which you will realize that you don't know who you are or even what you are. And in the acceptance of that, that you are not the body, nor the personality, nor the patterns of thought, but presence that is absence, that is emptiness. It is in the moment of that realization that the fullness enters the emptiness. This is the moment of the consummation of the union of Shiva and Shakti. A power enters into one's being in that moment of silence, an overwhelming power, a real power, but a mysterious, uncanny power, a kind of energy that has not been <clears throat> calculated or even recognized by physicists.
<clears throat> but that every yogi has known about since time immemorial. It's referred to as Shaktipat, the supreme energy enters in to consciousness, <clears throat> fills consciousness, which fills the body. <clears throat> and because this power recognizes itself as existing everywhere, as well as nowhere, it is emptiness and fullness that pervades the entire cosmos. And this is what is responsible for the phenomenon of quantum entanglement that the physicists have discovered, or what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. Well, because Shiva is everywhere, Shiva's action can happen at any distance. And that action is simply the relationship that is recognized of eye to eye, self to self, that produces a faster than light transmission of information, that produces synchrony, that produces the effect of a world of conflicting individuals suddenly reconfiguring themselves as a single superorganismic whole. It is that that is meant of to be the advent of Shiva consciousness, or in Christianity referred to as the rapture, the moment when every consciousness is filled with the presence of God, the revelation, the self-revelation. And it's this that's responsible for such phenomena as morphic resonance, as Rupert Sheldrake has been working on, and why your dog will understand you better than you understand yourself, and why all beings can resonate in the same way, and why it's possible for us to understand each other. And also when we're in the ego, why it's possible for us to misunderstand each other. But it's when that power enters in, in such fullness, that you think you can't contain it, that it actually overwhelms and overflows the body and bursts out into an aura that becomes boundless and infinite and pervades the entire universe from every possible center of consciousness. And the entire world is filled with that power, a power that is recognizable by the heart as the power of love. That the sheer delight, the bliss, the overwhelming beauty of all that is thrills the consciousness with that ultimate realization that the supreme reality is both nothing and everything and everyone here and now.
It is this state of consciousness, this ultimate paradoxical state in which one is absolutely introverted to the deepest level in which there is no sense of a being left, just that emptiness of presence, and at the same time completely extroverted, and one is present as the world and sees oneself in everything and everyone. This is referred to in the, in the, one of the, uh, the great Shaivite texts, the Vijnana Bhairava, as the Bhairavi Mudra. The Buddhists refer to this as form and emptiness as the same. It's in the, the Heart Sutra. You'll find the same kind of an understanding. One is the emptiness and the form, the nirvana, the samsara. The world and the worldless awareness as a single whole without parts, without boundaries, without differences. The same radiant divine light fills all. And the source is in everyone equally. It's this that's the consummation of meditation. The gamble that is taken to detach from consciousness and enter into the not knowing. In Christianity, there's a famous text called the cloud of unknowing. It is that willingness to not know who you are, to realize the world is this surrealistic strangeness that cannot be understood by the logic of the ego mind. And that everything is ultimately paradoxical. It is its own opposite. And yet those opposites are integrated into a single wholeness. It's in this willingness to let go of everything one thinks one knows that the knowledge that is the supreme awareness of God consciousness awakens and reveals itself as your own real being. And when this happens, the vibratory frequency of your consciousness shifts in such a way that you realize that what the world is is simply the appearance of the reflection of the vibratory frequency that you have been vibrating at. And as you shift your vibratory frequency from the low level of what we would call human consciousness <clears throat> to the supreme level and go through the entire spectrum 
<clears throat> which is equivalent to, let's say, the electromagnetic spectrum or the wave band of FM radio in which every different frequency can contain its own station, its own emanation of a, a stratum of meaning. As you shift wavelengths, the meaning of the world you are in and its appearance will shift. And it can shift all the way from a hell realm to a kingdom of heaven in an instant, just by turning the dial up to the highest level of frequency. But the human ego consciousness cannot stand too high a frequency of vibration and it will shatter, it will dissolve, it will disappear as you reach a level beyond that which the human mind can tolerate because it's too much bliss. It's too much delight. And it's our own capacity to contain that much bliss that we are developing in the practice of yoga. How much bliss can you tolerate? The more power you are willing to receive that is flowing into you from the source of being, the more you will feel the boundaries of what you thought you were exploding into infinity. Until the unknown self expands beyond the limits of time and space, matter and energy and becomes again that which is inconceivable to the mind. The knower cannot be known. The consciousness cannot be captured, cannot be contained. It is at this moment that the gambler supersedes the casino and the world is transformed. As you allow the mind to enter ever more deeply into the silence, the stillness, the emptiness, there is a simultaneous movement of energy into the form, into the presence. And the power of God fills and takes over control of mind and body. And life from that point on is lived from a center 
that is everywhere. Not from an egocentric perspective that cannot manage its own affairs without suffering, without self-defeat, but becomes a life of grace. And it turns out that grace and egolessness are the same. The resistance to this infinite delight of the real God self <clears throat> comes from the ego's ignorance and fear of the unknown. Fear of losing the little crumbs of enjoyment that it has that are always mixed with pain and sadness and loss. And it doesn't know that by trading that in for the infinite power of egoless presence, it gains everything and loses nothing that is real. But it's when you're willing to take that gamble to lose everything you think you have and are, that all is given, all is received, by that very source that the ego could no longer believe in, that is our own true self. It's not a matter of conversion. It's not a matter of shifting one's belief from atheism to theism. It's not a matter of wanting to believe or to imagine one has this or that quality, but rather an undeniable, undoubtable presence of power that dissolves all fear. And that brings the mind to such a silence and such an awareness of timeless understanding that all questions and all doubts fall away. And the ego's story, its narrative, that was always a false construction to justify its own actions that were taken against its own best interests, 
is forgotten and the soul is redeemed from its own delusions. It is at this moment that there is a revelation of the archetypal nature of our being, that we have actually never been leading an individual life, but have been living according to an archetypal pattern that we were not aware of, that our lives were lived within a frame of reference greater than that which we were conscious of. And that understanding then enables the archetypal pattern to reach its own consummation, which is that of the ultimate realization that the self is God. It is this moment that we are approaching or we would not be here. It is this moment that the world is approaching or it would not be in the depths of the hell realm that it is now in. We all know that the world is coming apart. The center can no longer hold. The systems are all collapsing, decomposing, shattering. Whether it's the ecosystem of the world with global heating and volcanoes and earthquakes, or the collapse of the global financial system and the global political military system, and all of the systems, social systems, family systems, ego systems, <coughs> ecosystems, all are in a state of cataclysmic collapse. And it's at that moment that the reordering according to our divine nature has an opening to appear because the hubris, the arrogance of the ego that can no longer control its own life, of an elite that can no longer control their own nations, of a world that can no longer be inhabitable or sustainable by life, a world in which the real has itself become surrealistic, a world in which madness is the common norm. It is in the world as it is now, in this state that allows the revelation of that ultimate intelligence that brings a new order of being that is not the world order that political powers think they will impose upon the world, but the world of that infinite intelligence of goodness, of grace, will emanate and allow to emerge from the depths of the being 
of our nature. It is this power that is now emerging within every one of us here, if we will but pay attention to it and cultivate it and allow its energies to rise without trying to repress them, without trying to control them, without trying to pretend we don't know anything about them, but to be true to ourselves, then the crack up and the breakdown will end and the breakthrough will ensue that will bring us to avataric incarnation. This is God's gamble. And I suggest we not bet against God in this final throw of the dice of time. It is God's advice in every scripture to bet on love, not on fear. You know, the same metaphor of God as a gambler does appear in the West and probably in the most important book of the Western sacred canon, which is the book of Job. And in this book, Jehovah is taking a walk. He's back in the world after a long absence. He let the world be run by his buddy, Satan. And he finds Satan on the road and Satan says, hey, dude, I got a bet for you. You've got a devotee down there named Job and he'll do anything for you. And uh, he's very pious. And because of his love of God, he's become very wealthy and all of that. He's got everything going for him. But I'll make you a bet that if we take it all away from him, that he'll curse God and die. And God says to Satan, okay, bud, you got a bet. Okay, and so they have this wager. And God says to Satan, all right, do your stuff. Take it all away from him. And, and God takes away his wealth. His wife leaves him, his kids all die in accidents. Uh, he gets every kind of disease and discomfort in his body. He's got boils, he's got, he's got every possible form of suffering. And, he's, and everyone betrays him and leaves him and, and says he's a loser, he's, lose, he's lost his reputation, his friends, everything. His world is ruined and he stays true to God. Well, God goes back to Satan and says, all right, I wanna collect my bet. And, uh, and he does so, and then God says, okay, well, give him back everything you've taken. And of course, he gets it all back. 
I don't know what he feels about getting his new wife, but he seems to be quite happy with her. <laughs> and uh, he gets back uh, kids, everything. He's, uh, he's a very happy guy, but he's still not happy that God did this to him. You know, what, what is this about? You're playing with me. I'm an object of, of gambling. And so he does go to God with one complaint. And, and, and God gets very upset with that. And he says, hey, who created this universe? You or me? You know, I'm the one who decided the whole thing would be based on gambling. And uh, you better be okay with that. Uh, he does this in such an impressive way that Job says, okay, I got it. And he accepts it all. But that moment in the West is never quite resolved. Uh, is God really good? Is it possible that God and Satan are actually on the same side and are betting together and uh, deciding the destiny of the world based on their own desire to be in suspense between good and evil, light and dark? Well, that's what non-duality means that the prince of this world and the king of that world are actually the same. And once we recognize the non-duality of these polarities of power and integrate them and go beyond good and evil, as Nietzsche suggested, although in an unfortunately nihilistic distortion of that reality, but when we go into that realization and accept all that is as perfect, then the apparent duality of good and evil is overcome and the absolute goodness of God prevails on earth as it is in heaven. May that moment of this divine wager be our present.